I will work day in and day out, wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by David from Labour Beyond Cities to discuss Labour Beyond Cities and the Labour Party as it is today. Welcome to the podcast, David. Now, um, the first question I'd like to ask is, in regards to uh, Labour Beyond Cities, how did it start? What what was the kind of uh, thing that made you want to start this particular it's a, it's a quite I've got quite a vivid answer for this, I suppose. So t- 2019, um, I guess I've got the benefit of being somebody who moved to London, which is obviously a massive Labour heart stronghold now, um, from what might be seen in some ways as a former Labour heartland of Sunderland. Um, so all the way through the sort of 20, the parliament that led up to 2019, because you could see the fraction fractures kind of appear uh, between those two parts of the country in terms of what they wanted out of things like Brexit and things like that. And so I'd be in London Labour meetings saying, oh, I don't think we should maybe do this. And you find yourself very marginalised in, in that group in a way that if I went home, for instance, uh, it was just axiomatic that everybody I knew was, was you know, we voted to leave, we're going to leave the EU, the Brexit's going to happen now, uh, and Westminster has to listen. Um, and I think that kind of came to a head in the 2019 campaign in the sense that I'd be knocking on doors around London and I went up to the northeast, and you'd see the enormous difference. So, you, for instance, you could go knocking for Pfizer Shaheen um, in London and there'd be dozens and dozens and dozens of people out on the doors. And then you could go to Middlesbrough uh, and knock for the candidates there. Um, and they'd be, you know, it'd be the candidate and two of their mates, for instance. Um, and so there's, you know, the, you, realizing in doing that, the vast amount of bias that, that Labour had at the time towards sort of big cities and how much over-representation of members there was there. Uh, and also, I suppose, a bit, a bit how naive some of the members were there in the sense that they were knocking doors and out. I'd, I'd sort of get to the end of a door knocking session and say, well, I, I, I think we're going to lose, but it might not be that bad. Um, and they say, oh, no, I, th- I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure we're actually going to lose. <laughs> loads of people, and I'd be like, we're definitely, definitely going to lose because I spend loads of time on the phones to the northeast and people won't even talk to us. And um, and these are parts of the country that, you know, we should be weighing the votes in historically. Um, and so come the end of the evening we had been knocking in Hendon and we went back to a flat in Hackney um, and I think I just spent sort of most of the evening running as the results came in and we lost these parts of the northeast and other parts of the kind of what's called the red wall just ranting at people who most of whom were you know PhD academics which was most of the people I went knocking doors with so it was just kind of like you, you realise the massive kind of difference in culture between those those two areas and those two groups um and so obviously went to bed at about three in the morning horse voiced i got up the next day and set up a, a whatsapp group that was just called labor beyond cities and it was just i just sort of started posting it to various groups of people who had been out door knocking with over the last few months uh and it filled up really really quickly um and from there we started to sort of think about local meetings and building a platform and whatnot and then the pandemic hit and uh and the meetings that we've been having and things trailed off and whatnot but i still thought that there was enough of an interest there in trying to bridge a gap and find solutions 
that would bridge the gap between the big cities where we wear votes and we have every seat on the council, for instance, in the ward um, in the council I live in now. Um, compared to the council where I'm from, which has been in a knife edge the last two local elections, it just made me think there's got to be ways to redistribute the energy and the people and the time within the Labour Party to other parts of the country where where much more in contention and where you know the your activity would matter a lot more um and also there's a lot of sort of skills and things in the labor movement that could be shared around uh and i also sort of thought it would be really nice to get people talking to people outside of their bubble because i think one of the things that was probably lost in the last sort of election period um was the sense of kind of common purpose and humanity between for instance, different sides of the Brexit vote. Um, and I found that really distressing because I went to a I went to a meeting after in Walthamstow, which was like an election debrief. And I remember somebody stood up and, and said, We can't just surrender our movement to thick racists in the north. <laughs> it's just thinking if we uh, if we just if nobody wants to do something about that attitude, which is disgraceful really, and it shouldn't be you know, that shouldn't be part of why you joined the Labour Party in the first place. It's, then there's got to be ways to do that. And so I was thinking, I signed that particular blog up that night to kind of do some phone banging in the northeast and talk to some northern folks. Because <laughs> the other thing is, is that you realise those people... Had, I was in the pub with them afterwards. I was like, have you ever been north of Birmingham? And he's like, no. I was like, well, how do you know them? How do you know this stuff? How can you so confidently advance this stuff? So I think I'd win around by the end of the evening. And it made me think that you know, so long as somebody stands up and says, I don't think we should be treating the people who haven't voted for us with this level of contempt, mm-hmm. and we should try and build bridges towards them, um, then that's, you know, that's the ethos mm-hmm. that I'd like to see Labour embody. And I think we've we've been getting better at it, um, but there's still a lot of improvements that I'd like to see, and I'm very much about practical solutions. I'm not like an academic theorist or anything mm-hmm. like that, so... Most of what I've tried to do is around practical stuff. Yeah. In terms of that kind of like that disconnect, do you think it is just a case of that so often there are people in the South who have just never been North and have this kind of like imagined idea as to what people who might disagree with them in the North are like? Or or do you think that it's kind of a, a complacency that, you know, these areas, as you say, um, in the past, the Labour vote has been weighed rather than counted. And so there's a complacency about these areas just aligning with everything that the Labour Party might advocate. Is it a mixture of the two? What, what do you think is at the, at the root cause of that kind of disconnect? I think there's a lot of different dynamics there. Um, the the complacency you mentioned has been really, really marked in the period sort of from the... I, probably from the Brown leadership onwards, but markedly so from the Corbyn leadership onwards, because, you know, in the 2017 result, we sort of ignored the fact that some parts of the country had swung away from us, which was Theresa May's plan at the time. Kind of worked, but just not to the extent that it had been expected. And so, you know, there were certain areas of the country that were markedly behind in terms of Labour vote. Um, and they later went to swing for Boris. And there wasn't really any attempt to think, okay, well, these have now become defence seats. Um, I remember in the later part of that campaign, a lot of people were using a, 
a doorknob being mar marked by momentum and they hadn't registered any seats outside of sort of the southeast in the first place because i guess they just hadn't registered any seats as a defense yeah. for prospects and um i mean you don't win an election in the short campaign anyway so probably a lot of those seats were gone regardless and that was being priced in but i think there's been a complacency that probably goes back to the gordon brown bigoted woman episode yeah. around a certain kind of voter that had nowhere else to go and um and that they would always vote labor anyway because the Tories would just take things off them um and so and also you know it was fine that they came and voted for us but also it didn't really like to associate with them you know you saw how yeah. comfortable Gordon was in that context um and that is a really really common thing and I think what you're saying there about you know what the dynamics of this are I think they're class they're largely class dynamics and the dynamics around investment so if you live in a part of the country that has a ton of labor members and that's in general that is London Brighton Bristol Manchester to some extent Liverpool I suppose um you live in a really really high investment urban center where incomes have been growing for a long time people have generally been getting better off I suppose you could argue that there's a there's a dynamic of young people priced out of housing there but that keeps them in labor for votes anyway but their prospects are generally good and most of them will be middle class because most labor members 77 percent of labor members are abc one graduate middle class types they probably have an owned home in their family and things that has benefited from those massive price increases as well so they're set to inherit some of that um whereas and those people don't mingle in the way previous generations might with people outside of their social bubble. That's a, yeah. that's the thing that that's social media is to blame for, and just the general. I think there's there's elements of workplace stratification and class stratification that just that didn't exist in previous generations. Um, and so you might, you know, in in previous generations, I think there was probably more interclass marriage and things like that as well. Um, but nowadays, it's like if you're if you're if you're a millennial who grew up middle class, the chances are you probably don't have any really working class friend. And and so when the Brexit vote came about, you probably thought, oh, well, everybody told me that we were definitely going to win in remaining. All the polls did, um, and I thought Miliband was going to win in twenty fifteen, mm. and I didn't know anybody who had a. I, I I'm exactly the same. I didn't know anybody. So sort of my 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 sort of extended family in the northeast who had different opinions to me in the first place. Um. So people live in massive bubbles now, and they're so they're likely to live in. If you're if you're a Labour member who lives in London, the chances are you probably do reasonably well for yourself in life. You've probably got a high level of education. Um. You you know you probably work in the public sector role or in a charity or an NGO. Um. And the the you know, you probably only meet working class people because you're doing something for them in the charity that you work for. Yeah. And um and the chances of you doing things like, for instance, working in a trade or in a labor in a manual labor job and things are, are, are minuscule. I think I've only ever met one or two people in the entire time I've been a labor member who worked in a in a manual labor trade type role. Um so there's a stratification there as well where you live in a bubble and you're unlikely to meet people from outside of the bubble. And that happens within cities and then it happens even more so regionally so you know you you might move away from home when you're 18 or something like that never come back and 
So if you've left because you're one of the aspirational types who needed to leave, like me, I needed to leave the North East because there was no work in the period after the um, Great Recession. Um, you, the chances of you meetings or, or fraternizing with people who were, for instance, lead voters in a depressed part of the country, whose life experience has basically been, well, they took the industry away and then my dad was on the door for three years. Uh, and then, you know, I, um, I hear all this, uh, you know, I, my skills under invested in the jobs around me are under invested in, there aren't enough jobs <clears throat> for people like me to get a foot on the ladder in the way that I might've expected. You know, you're, you're living in a, in an environment full of diminishing expectations mm-hmm. and the diminished life. And it's not, it's not fair. And those are the kind of voters in my mind, labor should have a, that, that should be labor's core vote. Yeah. It should be people in these places that are in managed decline, um, that have had, you know, their backside kicked for probably 30, 40 years with, uh, with an uptick during the Blair era and then straight back into underinvestment and managed decline once government came in. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, that if you go to one of those places, then the number of labor members there, uh, will be massively, massively less than it will be in the big cities. So for instance, Lewisham, my ward in Lewisham has more members in it than the entire of the two Sunderland Labour CLPs. And my my whole CLP in Lewisham has more members in it than the entire Tees Valley. So that's something like nine or 10 constituencies. So you're probably looking at, you know, if you have a, a lot, and that's one city in, in, in one constituency in London. So you probably have something like 10 times the representation in London and the Southeast than you do in the North now within the Labour Party, which for me is, is ridiculous. And it, that kind of thing decides how we, our internal culture works and about, and the decisions that we make as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to what extent do you think that part of the, um, issue is related to not just the kind of like internal lack of communication and lack of lived experience and that kind of thing with the Labour Party but also the Labour Party's messaging for the past decade or so I mean you mentioned the, the 2015 campaign and one of the things that um, I certainly remember about that campaign is that the Labour um, campaign at the time was understandably talking about the cost of austerity and and, and was very much playing on the uh, negative aspects of things that were happening in Britain at the time, whereas the Conservative campaign seemed a bit more, you know, discussing the sunlit uplands and that kind of thing. And obviously that was the more successful campaign. Do you think that part of it is that the Labour Party needs to focus maybe a bit more on having a, a hopeful message and an aspirational message rather than just saying, well, everything's a bit shit, vote for us. Yeah, I, I remember, I think it was one of um, Obama's campaign staff, I think it's David Axelrod, he'd said that Miliband's message was like, vote Labour and get a toaster. Um, and I do think that you're right in the sense that, you know, I, I think Ed had an extremely hard hand dealt to him to, to manage in terms yeah. of messaging and I don't think Labour's ever won an election it's really prone to nostalgia as a, as a culture because we talk about things like 1945 and everything all the time mm-hmm. um, 
Well, I don't think we've ever won an election where the messages looked backward looking or nostalgic. So, um, and we probably did that a lot during Jeremy's era. We did it with ads. A lot of Labour, if you ever watched the campaign ads for Margaret Thatcher in the 80s, they're really funny and they're like, they're hilarious. They're really well put together. They're really artsy. It's like Saatchi and Saatchi. Yeah. Um, and Labour, I couldn't tell you the last time I saw an advert for, for the Labour Party that wasn't kind of almost like a Warburton's advert of like, you know, I was in my village and then this got smashed and now the thing. And it, they are like, you know, they're, they're real issues, but the, mm. the, the adverts are always so um, like a mix of nostalgic and sad. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about Ed Miliband in 2015 that I think is really stark and shows something about this, uh, this kind of cultural divide, and also because it set my teeth on edge as well, mm. uh, is that people boil down his campaign to these controls on immigration mugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go, oh, it's, what a low, what a low bar for labor. One of the worst things that ever happened is that we had these controls on immigration books. Um, and if anything, if you, if you look at the labor party and the hand that it was dealt and the, and the, um, the election that it had to win, I think the controls on immigration books were as close as labor was going to be able to get institutionally to addressing what was probably number one mm. or number two on most swing voters. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, issues, and so they were at least trying to address a swing issue, um, and that that often has been a really, really massive issue for the last few elections. And I think trying to sort of, um, Labour doesn't want to talk about that stuff because it's it's uh, you know because it's seen as wrong or evil, and I find it really uncomfortable as well. Um, yeah. You know, my background is in frontline housing work, and in a big city, that means that I've dealt with or worked with to try and help loads and loads of migrant populations from all kinds of cultures um, and backgrounds. But you see it in the sense that, you know, to have a discussion about immigration, Labour, the the way that Labour wants to do that or avoid that is to imply that discussing immigration means discussing or blaming austerity or anything to do with the decline of the country on immigration. Um, And I, I think we can have a conversation about that that doesn't involve trying to use blame. But I think we've tried to dodge it many, many times, and it is often a top issue. And so there should be some policies on that. And I think Ed at least tried to have some policies on it. And the funniest thing about that is if you look at the voting coalition that Ed built, it had more C2DE, as in low-income voters, in it than Gordon Brown's in 2010, than uh, Jeremy's in 2017, and Jeremy's in 2019. Jeremy in 2019 got the lowest working class vote Labour Party's ever had, um, at least since it was a major party. So I, I think it, the fact that people instantly thought, well, this is disgusting and, and it's awful and it's a low point, is if you actually look at that, that was addressing an input and low income voters' concerns quite mm-hmm. in, in at least some kind of an overt way. I wouldn't agree that it was necessarily the best way of doing it. Um, but at least he was able to look at that territory and I think you know if there's one thing that needs to change for Labour to become not the least successful social democratic or democratic socialist whatever you want to call it party in the western world it's just the ability to look at hard things that lie outside of our internal culture and and try and address them yeah. and I think at least it tried to do that yeah. I think you're right his message was pretty 
pretty poor and didn't have a lot of um of talking investment and and various other things but the thing is the thing there is is if you look at the archetypal swing forward in the last few elections they have a really bizarre collection of personal biases so they might yeah. be really pro-taxing the rich really pro big corporation taxes pro-nationalization but they're also pro extremely harsh prison sentences mm. pro stopping immigration almost nothing is one of the things that i heard in means from the last election um they'll be very you know they might be pro corporate put or corporate punishment schools and things like that so they can be quite authoritarian and quite heavy-handed in a way that like offends the liberal mindset but they also are the voters that you need if you're going to do the nationalizations that you want because they want that as well um but there's just been no attempt to meet people like that in the middle and the one time we did um it was seen as like the most embarrassing thing the Labour Party had ever done <laughs> so um so with that in mind is it any wonder that we're the least successful party of all kind in in, in terms of where the Labour Party is positioning itself at the moment, do you think that it is kind of engaging more with people, you know, in, in, in areas that feel that they've been left behind by the Labour Party or not had that kind of feeling of wanting to support the Labour Party in the past 10 years or so? Do you think Labour's going in the right direction in, in that way? I, I think so. I think, you know, we've got... Lisa Landy and Leveling Up, I think Lisa understood this and I really liked her leadership campaign because it was the one that was kind of aimed at the problems that the country faced, not problems that the Labour Party faced. Um, and I think she got it that there was a certain kind of voter that we just completely repelled for the best part of seven years and they completely had enough. Um, and until we won the battle, we wouldn't get back into power. Um, so I think there is, I think we're mostly benefit from how just the how utterly complacent the Tories have been with the leveling up agenda. But we could be much, much, much more ambitious. And, you know, the main thing that I think, and the reason why this might be a difficult sell is because Labour members don't want to talk about redistributing wealth from themselves to the North quite so much. And every time I've tried to raise it with them, they, uh, they'll find some reason to change the subject. Um, <laughs> And I often find that the the reason for that is that a lot of the people in 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 wherever you go in Labour, at least in the south of England, have done really really well out of the last four years, and they're now in a house that's worth two million quid or something like that. Okay. And so if you say to them, "Oh, I think we should probably whack a, a million like a, a mansion tax," which was another Miliband policy mm-hmm. um, on like on property, um, then they'll 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 find some other thing that we should do instead. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's crazy. And yeah. um, and it shows a real lack of like, you know, I, if you're going to be on the left, you have to want to contribute yourself, some of your own wealth yeah. and some of your own energies to, to the benefit of the rest of the country. You can't always be finding somebody else who wants to pay for it. That's like the most effective criticism of our politics that's ever been laid at us. And some people are just happy to, to, like, to maintain that. Um, there's a lot that could be done in terms of redistributing wealth in this country out of the southeast, um, and it and I don't know why we don't do it because we're not going to lose a single constituency in London in the next election. We're not going to lose a single council in London. We're probably going to gain all of the external. We've got it completely unlocked, mm-hmm. and it's it's got a humongous amounts of wealth <laughs> tied up in property 
and earnings. Um, and, <clears throat> and for me, I think you sometimes have to, at, at some point, Keir is going to have to lay down his philosophy. And the Tories have been a bit like, oh, well, we'll do levelling up, which is mean, it's generally meant we've cut the councils to the bone, but we'll give you a bit of that money back. Um, and you have to bid for it, and we'll mainly give it to our mates and swing seats. So it's pure pork barrel stuff. Um, and we could do exactly the same, but we could tax our base to do it because they're not going to go anywhere. And that's exactly what we did under Blair. We just said our old base was miners, and we'll give them a pension, like we'll give them a um, four billion pound payout for industrial diseases in '97, uh, and then they'll just vote for us in perpetuity, as they always have done. And then we'll try and win around Mondeo Man, who's like an aspirational Essex lad uh, who wants to own three houses. And we did that really successfully. So it's time for us to take London's voters for granted and tax them and take the money outside of London, in my mind. And I, um, but try having that conversation with people <laughs> and see see how they react to it, because they 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 will never never accept that they they might. We might, as an institution, need to be slightly complacent about them, and they all they all live near the power structure, so you know they have the ear of um, of of the leaders and and whatnot all the time, um, just by dint of living nearby. So, so good luck with that. But I think that's what we should try and do, and I think that would make it more compelling that we have some particular agenda and how we're going to finance it is clear to people, rather than sort of trying to muddy the waters do it which is how it looks at the minute yeah um in terms of the kind of um sharing of, of skills thing which i know that you're keen on in, in terms of within the labor party how best do you think um labor members from different parts of the country can um share their experiences and, and, and help with uh one another in different parts is it a case of just having a, a a continual conversation is it going to different um clps and, and helping canvas there what what do you see as the sort of the, the solution to making the Labour party a bit more linked up in terms of skill sharing i'm i'm really glad we got onto this because i said before I'm, I'm much more about trying to like give practical solutions mm. to issues than just sort of pontificate about them <laughs> um and so there's a couple uh, there's a few that i think have been you know, the focus of the time that I've had over the past couple of years. Um, one of them is about trying to get actual working class MP selected, which we're doing a crap job of. And the other one is uh, is the skill sharing platform. So uh, I was involved in an, an initiative called the Labour Society Campaigners, uh, which is fantastic, run by um, Hannah, who was involved in Labour Together, which is a really, really inspiring initiative um, in my mind. And she sort of brought me in there during the pandemic when we were all sort of sat in our bedrooms doing nothing going on online, online meetings to try and tell their group and the Labour Together group about the things that we were trying to do. Um, one of the things that I'd noticed while we were sort of setting up the theoretical idea of the skill sharing network is obviously we have hundreds hundreds of thousands of members, but most of them are in safe seats. And safe seats spawn new members and swing seats don't. So you end up with really, really misallocated resources because Labour does not try and get people outside of their bubble. It, you know, if you sign up to be a Labour member, that it'll try and get you to canvas on your doorstep. And probably nine times out of ten, if you're a Labour member who's nearly sat up, you're probably in a swing seat, and you're not in a swing seat; you're in a safe seat. Um, 
So you're only knocking on people who probably only vote Labour. Um, and certainly in my council, every single seat is a Labour seat. So they don't really need my help, really. And um, and I think with that in mind, you know, I'd go to these other constituencies in um, like Northumberland and things like that. And you'd find that the average age of a member there was, you know, close to retirement. I mean, the average age of a Labour member is, is in the 50s, in spite of the fact that we're supposed to be this, you know, very youth-oriented party, still middle-aged and older. Um, and so most of the kind of creative economy in terms of things like graphic design and stuff like that is based in um, big cities, because that's where those jobs are, and that's where that kind of stuff proliferates. And so you, you don't have skills like that on hand, generally, if you're a CLP, running a council campaign in um, in Northumberland. But what I would try and say to members in London and things like that was like, you know, you want us to have this massive revolution in terms of how we run politics, but most parts of the country don't trust us to put their bins out. So, <laughs> so, so why don't we try and use some of your time and skill and energy to try and do some of the basic stuff first so that that infrastructure is built up? Because you're essentially asking for a humongous amount when the level of trust is really low in the first place. So a skill sharing network, as Ed sort of came up with it, I looked at loads of various different online platforms for doing it. Um, and there was one that's used by Harvard that I found that the party could license. Um, and that would essentially allow different CLPs, a plethora of swing seats or whatnot to be identified, and they could put out contracts at work. So it might be, and if somebody logged on, they could tag themselves with several different skills or several different things they wanted to do uh, and they could find opportunities to do that around the country um, and so if they wanted for instance if the contract came up and somebody wanted um, some design work done for a council campaign you could log in and do that for them mm. um, and that and or they could find you as well and they could send and say oh I've just posted this piece of work we'd really really came for you to help us do it um, so there's there's a lot of creative economy skills that are missing around the movement, and that, that I think that would that would really really work to share those out. But there's also obviously, like you said, there's there's just time and manpower, um, and so and it's but it's really really difficult to get people to do swing seat phone banking. Yeah, uh, it's just not in the party's culture at all. Really, I I went on the London phone bank to the Hartlepool by election that was advertised by like Labour in London, um, and it was just me. I was the only one on it. It was me and the organizer um, who, and, and it was, I was like, is anybody else coming? He's like, no. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's do, let's do like half an hour and then, um, and then we'll have a chat about how desperate a situation we're in. Um, but it's really, I think, I think a lot of that is down to nerves. And I think if you can demonstrate, if you can start to build a culture of that, and I think that's probably the biggest sort of failing of the Corbyn regime is not really activating their membership. Yeah. in places where they were needed okay. um then you know you need to set up s stuff that gets that culture rolling and and allows people to think about phoning another area and half the time it's like people are worried because they feel like they have to know every issue back to front but half the time the contact rate of of, of like a northern swing seat is, is minuscule so you know the in, in Lewisham, the contact rate is like every photo in Lewisham has been knocked at some point in the last year. Um, 
But then when I was in the Hardy Pool by-election, there were people who hadn't been known took them since 1987. And that was on the that was on the um, on the paper. So it was like, oh, they're not at this address anymore because the last time we spoke to them um, was just before Blair came in. And so I was thinking, God, you know, it, just numbers would make a huge difference, and it didn't. It wouldn't have to be anything complex or anything like that. But often you find that people, you know, if you knock doors on a council by-election. The first thing you'll hear from a lot of voters is, I only ever hear you from you during election time. Um, and some of them don't even hear it from us during election time, you know. And so just having a contact with somebody is makes them much, much more likely to come out and vote for you. And in council elections, often you're just trying to get 10 people up the road to drop a ballot in, and then you've swung the seat. And there's a lot of defence councils that swing on 10 or 15 seats. You know, the, mm-hmm. the last Sunderland council fight was sort of 15 votes in, in in something like five wards and you know if you lose those you lose the council but we'll happily pile thousands and thousands of votes up for a Sadiq's mural campaign or something like that so I think there needs to be I wish the mobilization unit would take s- some serious time into this sort of hybrid approach because I think also it's not just about being dumped into a phone bank session um, to call people it's about starting a culture of sharing so the idea of a skill sharing thing is to get somebody familiar with something so let's imagine you do some you do some graphic design or something like that or some seo or something for a local party in um in ashfield or something you've got a connection with them then so come election time they might say oh can you get five of your mates or something like that to come and so you know you caught you do that you go to your local clp meeting or you're on your local whatsapp and you're like oh this year, rather at the local elections, I'm going to help out in Ashfield. Does anybody else want to? Um, and we don't really have that culture. That's never happened to me in the time that I've been a Labour member. Nobody's ever said, right, we have this place completely on lockdown. Do you want to go and do something more useful than that in the swing seat? Yeah. Um, and so I think, but I think building that culture up would be really effective. And secondly, we would probably be the first major party in Europe to do it because the same divide exists in every major you know European yeah. center left party in in the in this divide the democratic the democratic partyization of the left in Europe is occurring apace but Europe is much less diverse than the US and has much lower rates of sort of college education education so you can't build an election winning coalition here out of college educated people who work in tech mm-hmm. and um and you know various different le- coalitions of people who are from minority backgrounds who were brought in at the party four or five decades ago we can't do that in the uk and it's not because the uk is uh you know fundamentally worse than any way shape or form it's just much less diverse so you have to win yeah. working class voters um to win an election and there's not been a single election in the uk that hasn't been decided by who the working class vote went for um, so yeah, so that's, that's how I think we should be, we should be building things with other parts of the country. And I think when I was originally discussing this with people and never beyond six means it's, it was like, right, you want them to vote for your candidates mm-hmm. and, and have your politics, but you don't want to give them anything. And we'd always talk, I'd always talk about, um, lesbians, gay support and minors. Cause I think they are an incredible model of mm-hmm going into potentially hostile area and having reasonably different different sort of political cultures and outlooks and winning people over by mutual aid mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that ethos is completely gone. And instead it's like, oh, well, if they don't want to vote, then screw them. You know? Yeah. They can have the Tories. They can, uh, and it's my way of the highway. And I think that's wrong. It's really wrong. It's more really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that uh, things might change in terms of the Labour Party as the party gets more confident and has a sense that, given the opinion polls and the general um, lack of support that there seems to be for the, the government at the moment, do you think that that's going to get people more enthused and more willing to go out into places that they might not necessarily have gone to and engage more um, with different communities and door knocking? Do you think that that could potentially happen as a result of Labour leading in the poll? Yeah, I'd hope so. I think the thing that the thing that we need to probably try and achieve in the next sort of two years leading up to an election is to swing loads of uh, councils to Labour, and I think that's totally achievable now in a way that it hasn't really been in the last couple of years. I think probably, you know, you can learn the wrong lessons from stuff like this, um, but it would be... Re and I, and I, I wonder who makes the decisions about where the effort's placed when it comes to things like that. But um, we don't have a London mayoral election this time around. So in my mind, every London member should be working on a swing seat in the Midlands. Um, and they should be attached to, this is what we did. We used to run this thing called Swing Phone Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was essentially, which councils are going to be electoral swing seats? Do you want to ring them? Because once you prove to the voter that you can take their bins out, then you know they'll also vote for you as an MP, uh, and often those seats will change hands on a dozen votes, and so just calling twelve people makes it much more likely for us to take them. So I don't. I hope this time, because last time out um, that I I was involved in that, it was clashing with the London mayoral election, so it was really hard to motivate people to do it. But you'd hope that people would make more of an effort and see the need to do this and. And I guess because, you know, because there's an ethos within the leadership of not taking things for granted in terms of winning, I'm hoping they're thinking about how they could mobilize people as well, mm -hmm. um, yeah. rather than making everything a sort of top-down win. And I think it'd be really healthy for the country in general if um, if people could find, ring people that they don't necessarily totally agree with and have a conversation realize they're two human beings trying to get by. <laughs> yeah. um, the the thing that makes me worried about institutional changes is that if you look at who's been selected to be an MP so far, um, it really shows that probably now more than ever, Labour is a party of um, upper and middle professional class mm. people um, who pretend to be working class because they were born in different circumstances. So you, so you. Eh, you know, we're probably about 60 selections. The most common profession of the people we're selecting is, is some kind of legal work. So it'll be barristers and things like that, or they're professional consultants, or they're, um, you know, in the upper echelons of medicine, or they're academics, or they're former generals or something like that. And the um, it used to be that Labour MPs were taken from, you know, ma manual Labour professions. So Nydevin, for instance. Uh, George Brown, who ran the economy uh, department under Harold Wilson. Um, also, Harold Wilson's cabinet was full of people who'd been teachers, people who'd been administrators, things like that. I, that changed quite a bit by the time of Blair, but it's only gotten worse in the sense that now more and more and more Labour 
MPs come from professional, you know, professions like law and accountancy. They'll, um, and they come from NGOs and they come from charity sector work or they're professional politicians. So they've mm -hmm. been a council, like a councillor or a SPAD or something like that for their entire sort of lives. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that there's necessarily a problem with, um, you know, s serving time in a council and then becoming a MP. I mean, it's, it seems fair, mm -hmm. but I do think it's worrying when the only people who step forward in the seat are members of the council. Because then it kind of looks like you've become a professional only organization in the sense that, you know, there's nobody else who wants to stand for it to be the MP other than the people who are part of the inner club. I think that's quite a, that's quite a damning scenario to be in. And it suggests that the party is a little bit more abundant in, that, in, in, in some places. And it also, when it comes to these selections, you get some absolutely bizarre arguments from people. I, I had an argument on Twitter with somebody where they were saying, I said, why can't a Sparky be an MP? Because, you know, some of our greatest MPs have come from a manual labor background. And they said, oh, Spark well, an electrician would probably be a good counselor, but um, but not an MP. <laughs> and that, that, but that is, a, that is an attitude that's all through the party now. And because it's got that particular idea of merit, which is, you know, if somebody works in a, like a, a shop or something like that, and they're running against somebody who's, I don't know, a PhD human rights barrister or something, then nine, you know, the, nobody in the party is going to sit and think, what are we for? Because this human rights barrister can continue to be a human rights barrister regardless. Yeah. They've done really, really well out of life. This is one of many options for them. Um, then, but this person who works in a shop, this could be completely life-changing for them. And they also might, you know, politics is about representation and and democracy is supposed to be about representation. You're supposed to be able to hear the voices of people who aren't just in the elite tiers of society. But if the labor is just institutionally incapable of of <laughs> of of being able to look at two candidates and not pick the elite candidate. <laughs> you just can't do it. And it's a really, really scary prospect, I think, because you know, that's not why the party was founded. So you want to have some brand difference between you and the Liberal Democrats, I suppose. Um, and it shows the same attitude that probably permeates a lot of the, like, the leave voting, oh, these people are morons <laughs> type of attitude. Because it sort of suggests that, like, you can't be working class and capable. And, you, you know, and that there's certain things that are just too high in expectation which isn't what we used to be about. We used to be about, you can take a teacher and make them head, um, you know, head of the Department of Education, or you could take somebody who hadn't been to Oxbridge, um, who was, uh, you know, like a typist, and they could run the economy and build 300,000 homes a year. Um, and so it fails to me that the story of the Labour Party is, is the entire opposite, which is that there was loads of untapped talent in normal people who were doing normal jobs. Yeah. And if asked to do something bigger, they could make the step up incredibly successfully. Um, and that, to me, is like, that's that's the story of why the Labour Party is a good thing, in in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and that is the particular kind of aspiration that I want to see. But when you have this conversation with people, they'll say, oh, well, we're supposed to be a party of aspiration. And I'm, I'm, I embody that aspiration. 
because I grew up in a council house, but now I'm a £300,000 a year barrister. <laughs> it's a bit like, well, that's that's great, but they can't. you can't all be barristers. <laughs> Some of you have to do other things. And also, I think it's, it's a really interesting um, set of biases on show because most Labour people are public sector workers um, who work in the bureaucracy. Um, and an administration and in the sort of legal and paper professions. And we're in a country now where it's almost impossible to do in infrastructure projects. We never build any houses. Things, you know, everything is held up in, in terms of industry. And, uh, and our solution to that is more professional bureaucrats, which is just bonkers. It's bonkers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely it is. Um, Thank you for taking uh, the time to speak to me for the podcast, David. Um, for people who want to find out more about Labour Beyond Cities and who want to get involved and to help out with the work that you're doing, where should they go to um, you know, find out what you're doing and become more involved? I guess what I'd ask them to do first and foremost is is, is follow me on, on Twitter and try not to judge me for being <laughs> outspoken about certain things um, and, and, and try and give me the benefit of the doubt about where we've got common ground. Um, so my Twitter account is forward slash lab beyond cities. So LAB. Um, we also had a website, uh, labourbeyondcities.co.uk, but I have to, um, I have to redesign that at the moment because it's not really serving the purpose that it, it used to have, um, in terms of policing volunteers and things. So I want to make it more of a, just a, an information website, I suppose. Um, so that, um, that would be the best first port of call. And if, if they DM'd me on Twitter, I can, for instance, give them a, a motion to debate on their at the CLP that would talk about the fact that out of the sixty or so selections we've made so far, only potentially one or two of them could be classed as working class. Um, or I could or I could send them the pitch that we sent um, to seniors of the Labour Party for a skill sharing service. And Labour's NEC has hundreds of thousands of unspent pounds at the moment in dues from um, from. Uh, from local pies that are paid centrally into a fund that isn't accessed. So if they wanted that, a skill sharing service, they could get in touch with me and we could get them in touch with the NEC and we could try and get them. Fantastic. Thanks once again for taking the time to come on and record the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast. Like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.